The loudest, the biggest, the brashest. New York is its own character in every play. The bad thing about New York is the pressure. You're always under pressure. Here are the stories about those plays. It's New York Accent with Damon Amendolaro. What can I do? I can't throw the owners under the bus. I've sort of got to take the heat. But it wasn't my decision to let them go. Some people will say, some fans who don't read deep into this stuff, you let Messier go. Well, no, I know I didn't let him go. He decided to go to Vancouver because there was more money there. He could have signed with the Rangers, but it wasn't as rich a deal as he was going to get with Vancouver. For over 80 years of Rangers hockey, one man delivered the ultimate prize. One man built the roster that held the Stanley Cup aloft. And his, his team did it in front of an insane asylum known as Madison Square Garden. Inside that madhouse in June of 94 was nostalgia and elation and wistfulness. The sign it lives forever. It read, now I can die in peace. Neil Smith was the GM of the 1993-94 Rangers who are the Gen X version of Joe Namath's Jets. There's only one of them. As he described, there should be a documentary, a 30 for 30 about this team. His trade for Messier two years earlier, his daily feuds with Mike Keenan, the gutsiest trade deadline in franchise history, the guarantee, the Matteau goal, Game 7 against the Canucks, Keenan then leaving, the franchise being sold, Gretzky then coming a few years later, and most powerful of all, the messy departure of Mark Messier and the note that he sent the Messiah to bury the hatchet, a story that Smith has never told anyone ever before this interview. He oversaw the blue shirts from 1989 through 2000 and still has built the only cup winner since World War II. This is Neil Smith's New York accent. Neil, how you doing? I'm doing well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing tremendous. Thank you so much for joining us. And how does it feel to know that you could still walk into Madison Square Garden all of these years later and likely get a standing ovation on the Jumbotron? <laughs> Yeah, if they see me and uh, uh, the new garden isn't as easy to spot you in as the old garden when they had the roundabout uh, going around the uh, inside of the, in the garden. You know, when I go back there, everybody would see you because you had to walk around to get to your section. Uh, now you sort of walk around inside the building and more incognito. But um, I'm very proud of what we did in, in New York and, um, you know, proud of the fact that that building has been there since 1968. And... Um, has only seen one Stanley Cup won by the Rangers, and uh, that was the one in 94. And not to mention that it's um, the Rangers themselves, as you might know, Damon, have never won the Stanley Cup in New York. In their their four Stanley Cups, the only one won actually in New York was uh, ours in 94. If you can put your body back inside the garden during some of those playoffs runs, and specifically 1994, can you reflect and, and remember that electricity, that intensity, that energy that MSG was filled with during those those playoff games? Oh, I can very much so. And, and you know, the, the other thing was is that on off nights, it was filled with that same electricity for the Knicks because the Knicks were going right down to game seven eventually against Houston. But, um, yeah, there was a an excitement in the air um, that – could this be the year? Because, I mean, basically from the get-go that season in 93, um, we'd been on top of the league. Uh, we, we really um, were a favorite all year the way the team was playing. And uh, so when it came to playoff time, 
you know, there was a real uh, buzz going on in all of New York and especially obviously in the garden on, on the nights of the games. And when we started off the playoffs with the two, six, nothing wins uh, over the Islanders uh, back to back uh, six, nothing wins. I think the, uh, uh, the garden faithful was ecstatic. Your tenure in New York with the Rangers begins in 1989, and quickly two years later, you swing perhaps the biggest trade in franchise history by acquiring Marc Messier for what would end up being four players. It gives you the cornerstone of that franchise. How did that trade come about, and had you circled Marc Messier years before when you had fought, when you had first taken over the franchise? Well, the, the answer to the second question is no, because I didn't know that he'd ever be available. Um, you know, at that time, uh, when I got there, Gretzky had been traded uh, a year uh, earlier. I believe it was 88 when he was traded, I believe. Um, and so, uh, but I never thought of Edmonton trading mess. Um, and then when um, Glenn called me about it, um, you know, Glenn had quite a reputation in those days of a, of a horse dealer, and and uh, you weren't sure whether he was serious or not. I mean, I was in only in, as you said, I was only in my um, third season or, or going into my third season when uh, that that trade possibility came about. And an interesting part about that, Damon, is that um, we were talking about it for quite a while, and then I signed Adam Graves as a uh, Group One. Uh, free agent uh, out from under Sather um, in the summer. And he was really furious with me for doing that and um, said, you know, he told some of the writers that, you know, maybe I, I, I didn't even want Mark. Maybe I was, you know, um, this could blow up any chance of getting Mark. And so I said to the, I don't know if I have any chance to get him or not. I don't, I don't know if this is real, but I do know that Graves was real and I could do that. So I did it. And, um, and as history says, we still were able to pull together the Messier trade. Did you worry when you signed Adam Graves that it could rattle the cages in, in Edmonton enough to, to lose out on Messier? I, I did, but you got to understand, I wasn't sure that he would really trade Messier. I wasn't sure whether he was just trying to, what he was trying to do. The other thing that's hard to believe in 2023, Glenn had said that there were no other teams really that were showing an interest except for me. And he gave me a lot of credit for having the, you know, the guts to go and, and try to make that trade. Others just backed away from it. And and you, you have to remember that in those days, um, you know, that Edmonton had played so much hockey and Messier in particular had played so much with Canada Cups and, and going to the finals so many times in playoffs. He'd gotten hurt uh, in the playoffs a year before against Minnesota. Uh, people thought maybe you know, that he was, uh, he was almost done. And that's why the Edmonton wanted to trade him and get what they could. Um, there was even an article written by uh, Walt McPeak in the Newark star ledger that he said, he bashed the trade saying, you know, here we go again with the Rangers trading young guys for old has-beens. Um, and so it wasn't, it wasn't as obvious a trade then as it is now, you know, in the rear view mirror, People must think, well, you know, Smith had Messier fall in his lap, uh, but that's really not the case. Uh, I had to work uh, to make that trade, and um, I had to pray that he would be the player that he turned out to be. 
Well, it ends up being the hugest deal in franchise history and certainly of your career as well. And you begin adding Oilers from those dynasty teams at Edmonton in the 80s. You've added Kevin Lowe. You said Graves taken in as well. And so now you've got this nucleus of guys that have played together. Was that a Messier idea to to go after some of those former Oilers teammates? Or, or was that your idea because you liked what they brought in terms of that championship experience? Well, you know what? My philosophy had been since being with the Islanders in the early 80s, um, that in order to have a chance to win, you better get people in that have won before. Um, I knew that if we could get people that had won the cup in the past, we might have a chance to win it. Now, Messier was obviously the biggest piece of that. Um, he was not involved at all in the, um, you know, any of the acquisitions. Um, Mess was there for two years uh, before the Stanley Cup year. And actually, the year before the Stanley Cup, we missed the playoffs through uh, some unfortunate injuries to Brian Leach. And Mess had some hurt injuries in that um, Roger was fired and, and, you know, that year didn't turn out very well, but, uh, during that season, I acquired Essa Tikkanen, uh, you know, at coming up and then I also acquired Kevin Lowe that year. So they were both on that non-playoff team as well. Um, and we had, uh, Jeff Bukaboom came sort of with Mark in that initial trade. Um, so we had quite a few and then, you know, McTavish came at the deadline right before, so, yeah, we had a lot of guys, and so did Glenn Anderson, sorry. So we had a lot of uh, guys who had played on Stanley Cup team, on a Stanley Cup team together in Edmonton. And, you know, to, to add one other thing, you know, to win a Stanley Cup, you've got to have both skill um, and, and, and hard work from the manager and from the coaching staff, but you've also got to have some luck. And I was lucky that that era was the era where, you know, the, uh, the Edmonton Oilers were trying to uh, go younger and they didn't want to pay big salaries and the big salaries were all coming. And who gets the big salaries? Well, the Stanley Cup winners get the big salaries. So they were dispensing a lot of their Stanley Cup guys in order not to have to pay this big U.S. dollars in Edmonton, Alberta. You had just mentioned Roger. Roger Nielsen was the head coach before the championship season. You then hire Mike Keenan to to run the 93-94 team. Did you know you had to to make a change no matter what? And how did Mike Keenan become the guy? Well, I had to we had to make a change in 92-93 because we felt we just had no chance to make the playoffs with Roger. Things weren't going well inside the locker room. Um, I love Roger Nielsen. I owe him a lot from my career. Um, he taught me a lot of things. And as a man, I can't say enough good things about him. Unfortunately, he's passed away now, as, as you would know. Um, but so we got through that season. Ron Smith took over the club uh, after Roger was let go. And we couldn't get out of the hole. And I said to um, the people that I reported to, I said, you know, we have to get a coach that can handle the, the caliber players that we have um, because we have a lot of star players on this team and we're going to have to have somebody that's been used to handling star players. That's a whole different thing than handling, um, you know, players that are up and coming. Uh, you know, it's, 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 it's much different. And so um, I said, you know, the three coaches that could handle this group uh, would be Al Arbor, Scotty Bowman, or Mike Keenan. I said, now Arbor's not going to leave the Islanders and Scotty Bowman's coaching Pittsburgh. 
and Mike Keenan just got fired by Chicago as GM. I think we should try to get Keenan. And they agreed. And, and you know, that's when we went out and, and got Mike Keenan to be the coach. He was the perfect guy for that team. He drove them hard, bunch of veterans, and obviously the rest is history. But midway through that season, even though you have a really good team, you decide to make some trades at the deadline. March 21st, 1994, is a flurry of activity the trade deadline for you guys. You trade two of your better players, Tony Amonti and Mike Gartner, which I think shocked a lot of people in the middle of this run. And you've got yourselves, as you mentioned, Glenn Anderson, Stefan Matteau comes, Brian Noonan, and ultimately Craig McTavish in another deal. That's a pretty big risk. What made you feel like you had to make those trades in the middle of what would be a very good season nonetheless? Well, it, I was really having my, my hand forced in some ways by Mike Keenan. And I want to clarify something. Mike didn't... Um, push for players that he wanted, but he did push for players that we should, that he didn't think he could win with, whether that be right or wrong. There are a tremendous number of Mike Gartner fans out there, including myself. And I, 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 Mike and his family are dear to me, but Mike Keenan didn't feel that way about him. And so sort of at the last minute, I talked to Cliff Fletcher and arranged that trade for Glenn Anderson. And the two of them were, at, at, at the very least in the playoffs, they were equal at the very, at the very least. Some would argue that Anderson, because of his Stanley cup uh, uh, winning uh, might have the edge on, on Mike who, who hadn't won. So that's a trade that I made just to, to change that uh, and, uh, uh, number to change from Gartner over to Anderson. And also Anderson fit in with mess and Kevin Lowe and all those guys again. Um, on the Tony and Monty trade, all season long, Mike wanted Mike Keenan wanted me to trade Tony and Monty for Stefan Matteau. And I said, there's no way I'll do that. Um, Monty is going to be a star in the league. Um, Mike didn't think so. Uh, and I said, Matteau is not enough for, for Amante. And this went on all year, all year, all year. And finally, I said, at the deadline, I was talking to Bob Pulford. And he's, I said, I'm not doing it straight for Matteau. So, uh, you know, I, I got to get another player. Um, and it worked out to be Noonan. I, I don't know if I suggested that name or he, he threw that name at me. I, I, I can't really remember that. Um, but, uh, but then I was convinced to do it. I was very, and still to this day, and I've told everyone this, I, I never liked that trade. I like it that we won the cup and we wouldn't have won without those two guys. But I don't like the trade as a as a as a talent scout, and you know, you never want to give up a guy that's going to go on to become a star. You know that you think could become a star, and I thought Amante could become a star. Anyway, on the McTavish trade, I had been talking to Glenn for a long time. They were going to miss the playoffs. It was quite obvious. McTavish was a great, uh, uh, you know, third line checking center, face off guy, penalty killer. And we and that year we were real short at center. If you remember back, we were playing Esatikin in at center a lot of the year. And he he's not a center naturally; he's a winger. So to get McTavish um, would really put us would give us that guy that could a shutdown guy. And uh, um, so after the trades were made, I said, "Look," and this was even internally and not only externally, we've got to be a better team than we were before the deadline. Because at the very least, we've only traded uh, Amante and Gartner, and we've got Anderson, Matto, Noonan, and McTavish. 
And McTavish went for um, Brad uh, Marchand. I'm, I'm saying that wrong, I think, Mar because of the Brad Marchand that's in Boston. Um, Todd Marchand. Todd Marchand was for uh, uh, for McTavish. Todd Marchand went on to play many, many years in the league and, and was really good as a small uh, centerman who could really fly. And uh, so, so we lost him as a prospect. And we lost a Monty as a future star. But when you're talking about just the Stanley Cup in 94, we were adding four regular players to the lineup that could play and 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 really fortify us in adding Anderson, McTavish, Noonan, and Matto. So that must have been hard for you then. If you don't want to make a deal, you see a future of, of these players that you think is valuable, and yet your coach is coming to you and saying, he's hammering you, no, we got to trade this guy. We got I can't win with this guy. That's got to create quite an underlying friction throughout that whole season between you and, and Mike. Yeah, because I, I'm supposedly his boss, and you know you can't really come in and tell me who, I should, who I've got to trade and this and that. But um, at the same time, I've always believed that with a coach, um, you better take away their excuses um, because if you don't, then they're they're going to have them when when they get knocked out or we the season ends, they're going to say, "Well, I told you that we weren't going to go anywhere with him," or "I told you that it was you know anywhere with that guy." So I thought by doing those trades at the deadline, I was taking away all the excuses that we could have for not winning, and um, and the other thing was. Uh, I knew if it, it, obviously if we won, no matter what I did, you're, you're, you know, <laughs> you're in a ticker tape parade. Um, but if we didn't win, I knew I, I, like New York is unforgiving, right? So, so you're going to be in trouble if you don't win because of the Amante trade. Um, they're going to be in trouble probably because of the Gartner trade. Cause there's a lot of Mike Gartner fans, but if I hadn't made the trades and we hadn't won, I would have been in trouble again because then they would have said, well, you didn't do anything. You didn't try. You didn't, you know, you didn't move anybody. So I just, you know, was convinced that I had to do what I had to do. And the, the, the results would be what they are, meaning in my own, with my own job and my own career. Um, and that, you know what, if I want to really be in New York, I better swing for the fences, like they say. So that's what I tried to do. Wow. That's amazing. You guys get to the postseason, and you have two early round series wins, as you had mentioned earlier, the Islanders, the Capitals, and that brings on the hated Devils. I mean, it was like all these karmic occurrences had to come and crash down in the 94 playoffs. You had to exercise all of the ghosts, and here's the Devils, and the Devils lead 3-2. You guys are going to the Meadowlands, and Mark Messier guarantees a victory to push it back to a Game 7 at MSG. When Mess says this, it gets splashed on the back of the newspapers, sports talk radio, WF fans going crazy talking about it. When Mess guarantees the win, are you like, oh, no, don't do that? Or is this exciting because you're saying, all right, my leader, my guy, he believes we're going to do it. That, that's that's what it was. It was the second one. I was like, I got, I got no control as a GM of what's going to happen, right? None. Zero. <laughs> in, in that situation. So... Um, when Mess said that, I was just like, oh God, I hope he's right. I just want him to be right. <laughs> and, um, there, there really, the pressure wasn't on me again, because there's nothing I can do at that point. I'm sitting back and watching what I built and you know, it, it, it things will happen. When Mess said that you're right. You've described it in a, in a really good way. You're saying like, 
my best player, my leader, the franchise at that time is saying that we're going to win. It, it makes you feel good. Okay, great. I, I, I Please be right. And, and as it was, I mean, that performance that he put on in game six is historic. I mean, I, I said after the game, I mean, this is like, the New York Jets and and um, and Muhammad Ali and and different, you know, his, or Reggie Jackson in '77. Um, I mean, it was just an incredible athletic feat under immense pressure. Twenty nine years later, I still get chills thinking about it and talking about it. When you go to the Garden and they play this on the jumbotron, or they you ever see a clip of it. I mean, everybody just goes absolutely crazy. He delivers a hat trick when he guarantees a win on the road. And you guys had trailed early two goal deficit to the devils. And in the, in the third period, he just, he leads the Rangers to the victory. What is the feeling like when he, when he delivers that and you, you leave game six, does it feel like, well, we, we got game seven because I just witnessed one of the great performances ever. Yeah, I, I can't remember what I thought about Game 7. I was just, um, you know, giddy about what I'd seen. Um, when he threw the puck down into the empty net for his third goal, after, you know, saying that we're going to win, and then going out and, and carrying the team on his back like that, um, I mean, there's no words to really describe it other than I was just trying to say like this is like Joe Namath in, with the New York Jets. I mean, this is like one of those historical moments in sports history and all of sports, not New York only, but all of sports history where, you know, someone um, says something. I mean, I, I think of when I was a lot younger and Reggie Jackson hit those three home runs off three different pitchers at Yankee Stadium on the first pitch from each pitcher. And, and like I'm thinking to myself like, how does that feel to be that guy like that does that in Yankees? I still wouldn't still get the chills thinking about that. And, and I'm sure that for people that are out there, they're thinking the same thing about mess. I mean, it's, a, it's really um, in the biggest game on the biggest stage, he's able to perform like that. It's just an incredible thing to look back on that leads you to game number seven, which of course has to be another dog fight, which of course is back and forth with the devils. And ultimately Matteau, 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 and you guys are going to the, the cup finals. Take me back to that moment and that game and ultimately watching Stefan Matteau score. Well, first of all, I'll say that the Brian Leach spinorama goal early in the game where he got he ah. sort of spun around and, and scored. That was incredible. And then the game goes one nothing the whole game. And, you know, you've only got this minute seven or something to get through. And then Zella Pukin puts the one in from the side and I almost fainted and, and literally fainted, literally. Um, you just couldn't believe that that could happen. And then of course, into the second overtime period. And, um, and that's down at the far end from where I am that that happens. So all I see is, you know, him behind the net, like a lot of people and, and then try to center it out to Tekin and who was in the crease at that moment. And it hits the paddle of uh, Broder's stick and goes back behind his legs and then it's just, you know, euphoria. Um, and I mean, I, I just, it's just euphoric. Yeah, I, I, that, that's all I know is that, uh, and Matteau had scored another big overtime goal in the Meadowlands. So, uh, no, you're just, I mean, as I said, you don't have control. You're sitting there like everybody else. And you just, you, you know, you know, you're either going to 
it's going to be heaven or hell you know when whatever scores uh it's it's it, but luckily it was heaven it puts you in the stanley cup final against the vancouver canucks and you're on the doorstep of history up 3-1 madison square garden game five and the whole city is ready for a championship and a championship night and a championship parade and ah not quite not quite mm-hmm. got to go back to vancouver and not quite not quite so back for a game seven against the canucks what's the heart rate like when you've got three chances to win a stanley cup you know what i do and what i've always done is found ways to convince myself it's going to be okay (laughs) uh you know saying like first of all when we went up 3-1 i was like we're going to win the stanley cup i can't believe this we're going to win the stanley cup we're up we're up three to one and Nobody comes back from down three to one. It never happens. And then, um, you know, we sort of, there was such a buzz in New York about, you know, game five and everybody thinking this is it, this is it, this is it. I think that seeped into everybody. Vancouver took advantage of it, played a good game, beat us. And then we go back there and then they they win again. And now now you're really scared. I mean, I am, I'm like, again, I have no control. And, but one thing that turns out to be very fortuitous again is the fact that we had two days off between game six and game seven. So our, we had the older team and whoever was banged up a little bit and lots of guys are banged up in the playoffs had an extra day to, to you know, to get, to get ready. And um, I think that really helped. I'm not saying we would have lost had we had only one day, but I think it was really helpful to have this, the extra day. You mentioned euphoria after game seven of the Eastern Conference Finals when that final horn sounds and bedlam erupts inside the garden after game seven. What are your emotions like? You know, I had asked um, uh, the head of security for us, and I should remember his name because he's a great guy and he's gone now. To uh, with, yeah, I said, with five minutes to go, if we're ahead, please come and get me and bring me down to where my mother and my wife were sitting, and which was like five rows behind the bench. And so he came and got me, and uh, I went up there, and I was with them. And when I got up there, I don't know how many minutes were left, but then we had to go through that icing call, and um, which... You know, I've watched that several times since then on, on video. And, like, that was a really bad call. That that was icing for sure because Burray let up on it. Um, but in any case, we get back there for the face-off with, what was it, 0. 0.4 yeah. to go or something, or something like that. Yeah. And my wife is crying my and and because uh, she can't take the, you know, the tension and I just kept saying to her, which I was really saying this to myself, but I was saying it to her, they never score in this situation. It never happens. It never happens. It never happens. I just kept saying that over and over again, um, <laughs> both to mostly to convince myself that it'll be okay. And then, of course, the buzzer went, and you know, then it's, you know, it's it's crazy. It's it's hard to describe how it feels because it goes so quickly. Then everything's on hyper speed at, at that point you know from uh what you do with the cup on the ice and all the rest of it it was just uh, you know amazing 
A couple of days later, you have the Stanley Cup parade. First of all, I mean, the, the garden is absolutely on fire. There's the sign, now I can die in peace, which really summarized how most Rangers fans felt at that time. Legions, generations of Rangers fans that never thought they'd see the day in their lifetime. You do it at the garden. A couple of days later, bright, beautiful June sunshine. You have the parade, ticker tape, down the, the Canyon of Heroes. It all seems so perfect. It all seemed like... If it was going to happen, it had to happen like this. All of the, the rivalries and all of the close games and all of the comebacks and how you guys won. And then, you know, the day of glory. And then you just own the city because the Knicks did not close out the championship that year. They would lose in game seven. And so that summer, it's just a Ranger city through and through. And those guys are just heroes. What is it like to to have the, the crown on your head in the biggest, the biggest city in, in America? Uh, that, that's one that I, you know, that's, that's hard to describe because I was also in the midst of all that stuff with Keenan, how he'd been talking to the Red Wings during the finals. And he had then subsequently, uh, signed with St. Louis in, in, uh, on July, I forget whether it was June 1st or July 1st or whenever announced that he was, um, calling for a breach in his contract. So I was going through all that, then getting ready for the draft or having just had the draft. I, I don't know which way it was. Um, there was a lot of business to be done in the summers. You know, we're not like the players that com that completely get their time off, you know, until the next training camp. And go party with the cup and swim in yeah. pools with the cup and drink beer out of the cup and things like this. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and take it to their hometown and do all that stuff. I mean, we have work to be done. So, um, and and they were selling the team, uh, the, the garden at the time. It was it was being sold from Paramount to um, Viacom, and of course you're all involved in that because there's a bit of a dog and pony show when the prospective buyers come through and they want to talk to you about your part of the business and this and that. So, um, I mean, naturally it was, you know, it was amazing, but it wasn't um, as uh, uh, myth myth mythical as it might seem it was yeah. for, for any way for me because as i said there was work to be done and at that time you didn't know that it would take you know that it would go uh 29 years up to this point you know you you, you were hoping to win it again in 95 um that was you know and then then we had the lockout coming up and aye, 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 there was a lot of different stuff so i mean yes did you enjoy it of course did you enjoy being the top dog in the in the league and in and in the city? Um, yeah, it, it, I remember it being great. I don't remember um, much more than that because there really wasn't time to go around and and have people buy you dinner and that. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting point. The honeymoon was short lived, even from a fan standpoint, because of the Mike Keenan thing. I mean, rarely do you have a head coach come in and just sit for one season and in that season win a championship and then he's gone a month later. Did that for you feel like um, like he was a bit of a traitor? Did it feel like he was a backstabber? I mean, emotionally, that must have been really difficult, although you guys did have your run-in, so maybe your life was a little bit easier without Mike. Yeah, I mean, Mike is such a different bird. I mean, you, you, if that had been Colin Campbell that had done that, I would have really been hurt. If that had been Roger Nielsen that had done that, but Mike Keenan was only out for Mike Keenan. And so, you know, for him, he wanted to go be GM someplace and, and get more money and, you know, get, get be a bigger, a 
bigger. Um, and so that's why I was working on Detroit in, during the finals. And that's why I ended up going to St. Louis as GM coach. Um, there wasn't really at that time in his life, and I don't know what he's like now, but there wasn't at that time any feeling of, I want to stay here and, and, and be the guy that, that won the cup for the Rangers and stay with them as long as I can. It was more of, I got to use this to jump to the next, to the next rung up on the ladder. And for me, from 1989 on, I only wanted to be with the Rangers. And I, to this day, I can say it, tell you that honestly, I, I mean, you know, here I am 23 years later after leaving the Rangers, I never would have left the Rangers ever until this day. I wouldn't have left the Rangers, but I, you know, that that's the way it goes and they make their decisions. And, um, but to, to leave the Rangers voluntarily like that, to go to another team, I mean, to me, it's like you're working for Mercedes and then you get a chance to go and, and be with uh, Lada, you know, and so you go with Lada. You know, remember the Russian car maker Lada, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, or, or Citroen or something. I mean, you're I you're, you're working on the Mercedes S line and you're 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 taking a job with Citroen because it pays you a little bit more money. Like to me, you get the chance to be with the Rangers. You don't you, you wouldn't leave there voluntarily. Were the players angry? No, I don't think so. I, I oh. think the players were were okay. I mean, again, you know, we had that reunion not too long ago. Um, 25 years and um i had a lot of comments from the players that things just haven't changed i mean it was all the same all the personalities were the same yeah yeah you know, from and personalities usually don't change as you know in your life i mean they people are what they are and you know what without him we probably wouldn't have won because he knew how to push buttons that needed to be pushed and and at the end of the day he was the head coach of the stanley cup team he's he got to get all the credit possible for that i mean no matter how he did it um you can't take that away from him two years later wayne gretzky comes about he's a free agent he actually has a bigger deal to stay with st louis but he decides on less money a two-year deal to come to new york play with <coughs> mark messier had you circled wayne gretzky as a guy that you wanted to sign or did he reach out to you did messier say hey you should look at wayne how does that come about no, that came about because when L.A. was um, going to trade him, if you remember, they traded him at the deadline or thereabouts the year before to St. Louis. And I was involved slightly with that. And then I kept on Mike Barnett, who was his agent, about, you know, in the summer, give us a chance, give us a chance. You're not supposed to do that stuff, but I was doing it. Um, <laughs> you know, give us a chance. <laughs> and um, so then that summer came. And, and again, I mean, the truth of the matter is, is that Wayne didn't go back to St. Louis because guess who the coach was? Okay, mm -hmm. so he left St. Louis, didn't want to be in St. Louis because he didn't want to deal with that. Mm -hmm. So then he, um, you know, picked his place to go of the teams that were willing to pay him. And, um, you know, we were able to get him to come there. I think it was a combination of the fact that it is New York, uh, along with, playing with Mark again. So I think that there was, um, you know, two big reasons for him to come to the biggest stage in the world and play with one of his buddies that he'd won all these cups with. And you make a run to the Eastern Conference Finals in 97, ultimately lose to the Philadelphia Flyers. And feels like that 
combination of Mess and Gretzky, even at the very end of their careers, it feels like, you know, this is a really good bond that they have. And yet Messier decides to leave himself for Vancouver. And so did that, what did that do for you? Did, did, did you see that coming? Did, and did you guys have conversations about that? No. Uh, what happened was um, the ownership at that time was ITT. And um, you have to clear things by the owners when you when you do things. And Messier's contract was up. Um, they said to me, well, you can't give him more than you give Gretzky. Gretzky's better than him right now or just as good. And that points-wise, they were right. And I said, well, but he's the leader of the team and, you know, we can't let him go. And they were pretty adamant about not paying more than what I offered him. We ended up negotiating at a little bit higher, but he was he was mad at us. And see, there's always a, a, um, a little-known story behind everything that happens. And this little-known story was that um, the owner there, McCaw, his name was McCaw, had tried to sign Gretzky the summer we signed him, which was, you know, the summer before. And Gretzky came to us. And so he told Pat Quinn, and Pat Quinn told me this later, that he said, I don't care what it is, you sign Messier. And Pat, I don't know if Pat Quinn wanted to or not, but he had no choice. So they signed Messier to that humongous deal that he got. And, um, you know, we, we weren't even in, in, the, in the same ballpark with that deal. And um, so it was tough on me because not only did I like Mark and, and um, obviously uh, feel a lot of gratitude for what he had done for the franchise, but it also was, I was, I, I was now positioned even by him as the bad guy, you know, as the guy that, you know, which wasn't really true, but I, what can I do? I can't throw the owners under the bus. I've sort of got to take the heat. But it wasn't my decision to let him go. Some people will say, some fans who don't read deep into this stuff, you let Messi go. Well, no, I know I didn't let him go. He decided to go to Vancouver because there was more money there. He could have signed with the Rangers, but it wasn't as rich a deal as he was going to get with Vancouver. So um, that was really, I, that was hurtful at the time because, again, I was, it all was forgotten at that time about, the fact that I traded for him and that, you know, I'd done all these other good moves and now you're a village idiot because you let him go. In fact, the back of the post said dumb and dumber about me and check it. <laughs> did, did you feel like it was the fans and media that didn't understand the, the byproduct or, or the context or also ownership that did ownership bite back at you? Like, how could you let him go? No, no ownership was fine with him leaving. Um, because they're the ones that set the price. Uh, but I thought that the writers and some of the writers and the fans, therefore, and remember, there's no social media, there's no internet to, per se, um, uh, they didn't understand. And so here's the problem with, as, as a GM of having an iconic player play for you near the end of his career. The... In the sports business, we sell love of the players to the to the fans. So we say, love our players, buy our tickets, buy our merchandise, love our players, come cheer for our players. Then we get into a dispute with one of the most beloved players. Well, do you think that we have a, 
we have no chance with the media, with the public, because of course they're going to side with the beloved guy that we sold them the addiction to, you know? So I would became the bad guy, which goes with the territory because mess was mess. And I mean, nobody wanted to see him leave. And you got to find a reason for why he left. Well, there's the reason it's that guy. He didn't get him. He didn't sign him. He didn't get it done. Um, and that's, that goes, as I said, that goes with the territory. It's one of the tough parts of, of uh, being in charge and you got to suck it up and go along with it. But that inside it hurts because you're not, you know, nobody likes to be uh, criticized like that. And Messier, if I'm not mistaken, never makes a postseason even in Vancouver with that contract. Have you ever spoken to him and does he regret signing that deal and leaving Camelot? Well, we haven't spoken so much about that per se like that. He got bought out of the last two years of it too. So he played, I think, in Vancouver for four years, I think. I, I'd have to look it up. Came back to the Rangers when I was gone. Um, they did that as a, you know, they did that publicity thing with Barry the Hatchet and all this stuff. Um, Mess and I are friends. Uh, I, you know, I'll talk to him when I see him. We, we're like, like I, I, I don't think there's any thought of resentment on his part at all, and there's certainly none on mine, uh, because all we think about is the what we did together in in '94. Um, but I, I did write him a note. Uh, not too long ago, uh, because I was doing a collection of uh, photographs in my office and I wanted him to sign something. He said, yeah, sure, here, send it to this address. And I put a note in there uh, sort of apologizing for 97 and saying, I wish that never would have happened and I probably should have pushed harder with the owners. I didn't and I was wrong and I wish I had of and I'm sorry that that shit ever happened um because i am i am sorry that it ever happened I, it would have been a much better storybook story if he would have stayed in new york um but you know things happen wow that's a really interesting backstory i don't think a lot of rangers fans would understand no, nobody, that kind of context. Nobody, the first time i've ever told that i wrote that note is right now i've never told anyone that when you guys got back together for the 94 reunion a couple of years ago did it feel like all of that turmoil, the Messier stuff, the Keenan stuff, all that, that that had kind of been buried? Or as you said before, things didn't change much. All that stuff kind of still simmers. Yeah, Mark is such a pro. Like he was out on the – he did the sort of the MC job on the ice, and he was very complimentary about everybody. I don't – you know, including me, uh, things that he said. And then when we got together, he was – you know, I'm using this word not in a weird way, but he was a loving guy. Like, we were all loving to each other at that event because we do. We love each other like that we were did this great thing together. And he was great. And and I can honestly say that I think if I saw him right now, I mean, we'd have a great time, you know, laughing and, and about things. I send him things from time to time in text or that. And uh, and so it's like it's like it's water under the bridge and it's gone. Um However, um, you know, you're asking somebody, this is the way I felt. Okay, so I'm going to send you a photo of you with the Stanley Cup on the Rangers. Um, I want to I make sure that I, um, 
you know, say to you, I'm not just asking you to sign a picture of the Rangers and oh, by the way, yeah, I'm, I'm the one that got rid of you. Like I, I, I wasn't the guy that got rid of him. And I want him to make sure he knew that because I, I felt I would feel very disingenuous if I, if I had been that asking him to write a note and then, and, and sign a photograph um, for my office. Uh, you know, so I want to make sure he knew that like, yeah, I blame myself in one, I'm hard on myself. And I said, you know, I should have tried harder. I should have pushed harder. I should have done things differently. Um, I should have pushed back on the owners. I don't know what it would have cost me to do that. Um, but I didn't, and I'm sorry. And I'm sorry that thing ever happened, which I am. I'm very sorry that that ever happened. Uh, but again, there's only so much you can control in life. You don't end up being a full-time GM for another team in the NHL, but you do have a, a short stint, about, what, six weeks with the Islanders. And I'm wondering, after you left the Rangers, you had made that comment, you know, once you work for Mercedes-Benz, you don't want to go work for so-and-so. Is that how you felt when you left the Rangers? Like, no other NHL job is going to match this, so it's not really of my interest? Well, there would be... No, that's not the way I felt. However, there would be no other job that I could get that could ever match the experience I had in New York. I don't care nothing now. Because even if I was to go home to Toronto and win it in Toronto, Toronto's not New York. Even though Toronto's more of a hockey town, obviously, and it would be like the Yankees having not won it since 1967, and then you ran the Yankees to win it. But um, that in New York was... I mean, there's no way you could get as high a high as that was. You you couldn't. It's not possible. You could win five in Colorado, and I'm only picking out Colorado. Pick any town, and it's not the same as that one was in New York. I mean, it was just off the charts. And so, I would have I would have uh, liked to have been GM again. I I did apply for the Toronto job um, in 2006, and I was runner-up to John Ferguson Jr. Um, I think there's people that think that maybe, I, I, you know, that might have not been the right decision on their part. But anyway, um, then I did go to the Islanders, and that was a very bad fit at that time. Um, and uh, it ended quickly because I just couldn't do it the way the owner wanted me to do it. It was just I couldn't do it. I'd rather not work than do that. Yeah, he wanted so, basically a board of advisors to be able to all yeah, he, pitch into the decisions, not allow it to be your decision. Yeah, it's, it was. He didn't want anything traditional, so nothing traditional. Wanted to do everything different, and therefore you're going to have a committee, and you're going to, you know, there's going to be a lot of people having a hand in the decisions. And I'm like, well, it won't work. That that doesn't work anywhere. You got to have one leader, and if that's what you hired me to do, and now if you don't want me to do that, then I'm, I'm out. So, eighty-three years. We all dream about doing something great in our lives and and setting ourselves up for something special. We did something very special. Eighty-three years of Rangers hockey, and you are the only person to have built a Stanley Cup champion. How does that feel? It it feels fantastic. I mean, I, I'm very proud of it. Um, I know that it wasn't just me, of course, you know, it, it wasn't, there's no way it was. And the first, um, uh, first, uh, applause should go to the players always first and foremost, always. Um, but I'm, I'm very proud of the fact that I could, uh, 
in five years, take the Rangers from where they were when Phil Esposito was let go in April and um, May of 89 uh, to only five years later, you know, win the Stanley cup in New York. It was something that people thought they would never see in their lifetime. And so um, that, that is an amazing feeling. Uh, and, and if it ends this year, meaning if there's one this year for New York or it ends in 10 years from now, I don't think there'll ever be one like that one. Um, it's really interesting that you say that because I just had a conversation today before you and I spoke with a buddy of mine who is a season ticket holder to the Rangers. He loves them dearly. And I said, if they won a Stanley Cup this year, how would it feel? And he goes, it would be great, but I don't think anything will ever feel like 94 did for all the reasons you and I just talked about over 45 minutes. And I think you're right. There's just something that's always going to be so magical about 94 that I don't know if you can ever match no matter what ends up happening. Yeah, I mean... I, I'm sort of surprised that they haven't made a movie out of 94 because if you think about all the interesting twists and turns it took, you know, one of the best hockey, the best hockey movie I've ever seen is Miracle, hmm. in my opinion, other than Slapshot, of course, um, but Miracle. And when you, when you go through that movie and see all the twists and turns that Herb Brooks went through and those players went through, it's fascinating that they ended up winning. Now, that's, that's the story of the David and Goliath type story, okay? Ours isn't a story of David and Goliath, but just the things that you've been talking to me about during this time, there were so many twists and turns and, and what I was saying, I'm surprised somebody hasn't come up and tried to make a movie out of it because there are just so many twists and turns to breaking this 54-year jinx that ends up being now 83. I mean, that's an even bigger story than, if you think about it, the... The U.S. had won the gold medal in 1961, was it, or 1960? They had won the hockey gold medal. So that was 20 years later. I mean, we're talking, you know, decades and decades later. Um, and, and with all the characters that it would be in this movie, from, you know, from the Mike Keenans of the thing to the trainers to everybody. So, you know, when we went and had that anniversary, I can honestly tell you that you felt the that these guys just loved each other. They loved everybody in the room, loved each other. Like they were just like, it was the greatest thing to see each other again and to be back together at a, at a point where there was no boss. I wasn't the boss. Keenan wasn't the coach anymore. The, 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 the players, there wasn't a first line center in the room. There was now it was just, you were all equal because uh, your careers are all over. And it was just, uh, it was just unbelievable feeling. You deserved a little bit of fortuitous bounces dealing with Keenan all those years. So <laughs> it just evened itself out, I think, a little yeah. bit. <laughs> Neil Smith is the architect of still the last and only Stanley Cup champ for the Rangers since 1940, a very successful executive in the NHL, successful broadcaster as well, and kind enough to spend this much time with us here on the show. Neil, this was more than I could have ever asked for. I really, really appreciated the stories, the context, the anecdotes, the opinions. That was that was really special. Thanks so much for sharing that with us. Oh, you're, you're more than welcome. And uh, maybe I can come on down the road. Man, that was good. That was really good. I think even if you're not a Rangers fan, that's a pretty powerful conversation. You know, really, I think the most powerful part of that was 
was Neil Smith talking about the note that he sent Mark Messier. You know, you, you think about how that whole thing kind of was disassembled and faltered and kind of eroded away, and, and then the Rangers fell into great despair for years after the 90s team had kind of been dismantled. But the Messier departure really felt like the end. That was the effective end of that magical team. And to hear it from Neil's standpoint that that wasn't his decision, he was handcuffed by management, Everybody blames Neil Smith for not re-signing Messier, but there was also vengeance involved. The Canucks had it out for had it out for the Rangers and wanted to make it financially unfeasible to to re-sign him. And then wanting to to tell Mess, you know, that that's my fault. I, I gotta own that. That's that's remarkable stuff. I really appreciate the honesty, the candor from Neil Smith. I had never heard many of those stories from him before. So that was that was really great. That was really, really great. And, and Stanley Cup postseason has been in the air the last couple of weeks here in New York with the Islanders, Rangers, and Devils all making the playoffs. Now only the Devils are moving on, but that was perfect for this kind of time here in, in the city. I want to read emails now, always one of my favorite segments of the week where we get to read the feedback from you guys. And you can either tweet at me, at DA on CBS, or on Instagram, you can find me and message me there. My DMs are open. That is at Damon Amendo on Instagram. Follow me there. Or email us at nyaccentpod at gmail.com. This is an email from rmbm31 who writes in, Hey guys, I just wanted to say that the Sean Green podcast was one of the best interview podcasts I've ever listened to in my life. Incredibly organized and an absolute smooth listen. Thanks for that. Well, thanks for the feedback. I appreciate that very much. You know, it's it's kind of interesting. I know podcasts are are known for this kind of free-form, free-flowing conversation. Certainly, there's a value to that. But sometimes I personally feel like those conversations get distracted. And because you kind of go down a certain rabbit hole, sometimes it's it's hard to piece it all together in a timeline standpoint. And so I, I enjoy doing these from a chronological standpoint so that it's kind of easier to follow, especially for those that don't know the story. I know that, you know, for, for many of you, you know these the timelines inside and out and every maneuver and every decision and every roster move. But for some, it's been a long time ago, so they forget. And for others, they just don't know this story, they're hearing it for the first time. So I think it's it's a, it's a benefit to, to talk about it in a chronological way. And Sean Green was excellent in that, and, and I'm glad that you enjoyed that conversation. That was last week's episode, the previous episode here of New York Accent. And, and Sean played for two really memorable Mets teams, the 06 team that lost the NLCS Game 7 against the Cardinals, the Carlos Beltran bat didn't come off his shoulder game, and then 07 when they blew a seven-game lead with 17 to play. So he has some interesting context about those Mets teams and about his career and putting up some really big numbers during a really big number era of the early 2000s, and so nobody really remembers how great his stats were. But um, also, uh, one of the great Jewish ball players ever. He sat out on Yom Kippur three different times. He talked about the moments that that became big national news and controversy and a debate topic and playing in New York and being connected to the Jewish fans. And um, that was a really interesting and unique conversation as well. So I appreciate you sending that in. You can catch me weekday mornings on CBS Sports Radio on the national side of things. 
That's available on the free Odyssey app or Sirius XM 158 if you're in the New York City area. But also, this podcast delivers a new episode every Tuesday. So if you wouldn't mind, please subscribe to the podcast. If you're not subscribed already, that gives you notifications on every new episode that comes your way. And also, if you wouldn't mind leaving a rating and review of it, good or bad, but hopefully good. That's great because then it, that really helps other people find the podcast. That That's really a big part of the algorithm so that other people can find the podcast if it gets rated and reviewed. All right, so that'll do it for this episode of New York Accent. As always, thanks so much for listening. Executive producer Bryce Gelman on the project. And this has been an original Odyssey series. <laughs>